so we're, we're in this series, we began this sermon last week, and this sermon series is focused around a conversation that honestly we've looked at so many times over the last uh, several years, but it's a conversation that Jesus had multiple times with, um, it, it, the characters sort of change, but the context of the conversation, the, the uh, gist of the conversation doesn't change. And what it is is some uh, person comes up to Jesus at different times, it's a different person, but they come to Jesus, they ask Jesus a really simple question, and I framed it this way last week, and I think this is helpful to us. What, is, what does Jesus really want me to do? That's how I framed it last week. What, what does Jesus want me to do? What is, what is the expectation? And I think for all of us, we've got different expectations, right? Some of us have a set of expectations. We say, this is what Jesus expects of my life, or this is what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. This is what it looks like to follow God. And so we ask this question, you know, what does God really expect of me? What's the most important thing that I need to do? And if I said this last week, if I went out in public or if I asked everybody here today, you know, we'd probably get, uh, you know, 50 different answers to that question. And we're not the first people, as I said, to ask this question. People have been asking this question really throughout time. Uh, people who have been trying to follow God say, you know, well, what, what does God expect of me? What does God want of me? And this isn't necessarily just a Christian question. It's not a Jewish question. Uh, it really relates to any religion. Any religion is really asking, right? What do the gods or what does God want of me? And you see throughout history, uh, sometimes these questions get answered in ways that are very unexpected. We see, you know, sacrifice or we see different types of things. And people say, well, that's what God expects of me. And if I don't do the right things, I'm not in that particular God's favor. And so this question comes up and this man comes to Jesus and he says, teacher, which is, uh, he said, rabbi, teacher, he's looking at Jesus as an expert in this, you know, he says, hey, I, I, I want to hear what you have to say. You seem to have knowledge of this. What, what do you say? What, what is the most important thing? Now, one of the places we find this question is Matthew 22. So that's where we're looking specifically in this series at this question. And it says this. So here, here's the person. They come to Jesus. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law. Now, they immediately set this in that Jewish uh, context of which Jesus was a part of. They say, uh, what is the most uh, important, the greatest commandment in the law? So they're pointing back to the Hebrew scriptures and asking, what do you say? What's the most important? If you could take all of this and you could bring all this into one thing and answer for us, what do you expect us to do? What is the greatest of those? What is the greatest commandment? And Jesus replied. Now, I love this because we get an answer. I, I, I said last week that sometimes, you know, you're waiting and you expect Jesus to be like, well, let me tell you a story. And you're like, oh, man, now i got to figure out what that story means, right? Like, now I've got to sit here and take that apart and figure out all those pieces. But Jesus comes straight to an answer. And it's one of those rare moments that you're like, I'm going to get a direct answer. And Jesus says this. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. And with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And you know, I think for a while we might look at that, we might sit in that, we might go, that's great. If I would just love God with all of my heart and all of my soul and all of my mind, then, then I've, I've got it. I've, I, I, will, I will fulfill the greatest commandment. But guys, then we begin to ask ourselves, well, what does he mean by heart? 
And what really is, does it mean by soul? And as Jesus says this, what, is, what does it mean by the soul? And, and how do I love God with my mind? And what does it mean about mind? And then as we find, as we discover, we look and we realize there's a context here. Jesus isn't just saying this. This isn't a new answer. Jesus is quoting a prayer that went hundreds of years before even Jesus. So now all of a sudden we have to back up and we have to say, okay, well, if he's going to quote a prayer... And in this ancient prayer, he says, love God with your heart and your soul and your mind. All of a sudden, we have to go, well, what do they mean by heart? And what does it mean by soul? What does it mean by mind? Because just the same way if I asked you what's the greatest commandment or what does God expect of me, I'd get different answers. If I say the word heart, everybody might think of heart in a little bit different way. If I said, you know, the word soul, all of us sort of have a different understanding, different mindset of what the word soul or the concept of soul might mean. And if I talk about the mind, some of us might be, well, I know some people that I don't even think they use their minds. How are they supposed to love God with their minds, right? So how does that work? How, what does the word mind have to do with any of this? And so it gets a little convoluted, and then you add to it this really fascinating piece that all of us function in one way out of one of those pieces more than the others. Some of us tend to dwell and lead with our minds. Others of us are gut people. We react. We have this sense of, in my soul, I know it. Or others of us, we have our hearts are tending to lead us in that direction. So last week we looked at the word heart, and this week we come to this word soul. But before we do that, if you weren't here, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. But this really does build on it, so I want to talk a little bit about how we talked about this word heart. And we talked about this idea, this, this word heart, that, that it, it comes from the Hebrew, and we're going to be doing a little bit of word study during the series. It comes from this word lavav. And this passage was originally written in Hebrew, so learning about how people understood this word heart, lavav, in that context of the Hebrew language of those people really does matter. And what we learned last week as we looked at it was the heart wasn't just a physical place that beats in your chest. It's not just a place of emotions where you might, you know, wear your heart on your sleeve. But the Hebrew people would have understood that it was also a spiritual place. It was the center of your mental capacity, which is weird for us to imagine, right? We think of our mental capacity happening here. But oftentimes how they understood it was that also took place in your heart. So what we found is that we have to, if we're going to love God with all of our hearts, we have to understand what rules our heart. What rules our emotions? What rules our spirituality? What rules the mental decisions that we make in our lives? And what we concluded was that if we allow fear, if we allow passion, if we allow sin to rule our emotions, spirituality, and the choices that we make, it leads to destructive results. We know that. But if we allow Jesus to rule our hearts, loving God with all our heart, his mercy and his grace will lead us to a life of true peace and true life. So we found that loving God with all of our hearts is about saying, what is that first place? What, what is it that rules my heart? And it's so easy to fill that place, to say that I'm going to allow all kinds of other things to rule my heart. You could have anything. You could be ruled by money, 
You could say that my heart is ruled by money. Everything that I drive for is found here in money, in greed. We can rule our hearts by trying to, um, you know, find that perfect job, that moment that we say, I finally made it, only to realize we spent our hearts on the wrong thing because it was never, it wasn't worth it. What we find is that ruling our hearts, if we put Jesus there, say, you rule my hearts, none of this other stuff matters anymore. And that's loving God with all of our hearts. So then we move on and we see the next part of this prayer that Jesus quoted. Let's go back to this prayer. I want to read this again. We find this in Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 through 5. And so as I read it, you're going to see Jesus quoting this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And so again, we see as Jesus answered, he puts this prayer on his lips and puts it on the lips of this man. This man knew this prayer. The question is, was he living out this prayer? We can all memorize a prayer like this. We can say, yeah, I should love God with my heart. But then when we actually apply it and say, like, I'm going to allow Jesus to rule my life, like, that's a big deal. If you wake up each day and say, okay, today I'm going to let Jesus be the Lord of all of the decisions that I make. Every decision I make is going to be through the lens of, is it, does it glorify God? Does it lead me closer to Jesus? Like, that is a big deal. It's easy to wake up in the morning and be like, you know what, I'm going to choose a me day. I'm going to choose choose a what I want to do day. I feel like whatever I want to do is what I want to do, and that's good for me, and like, I'm going to let that be my king today. That sounds pretty good. It's hard to actually put this into action, but that's what that word here is about. Not just hearing the prayer. He's saying, don't just say these words. He's like, live it. Do something with it. Make it happen. And so then he goes on to this word, soul. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And I think we've got that figured out, right? We're good? Are we good? And then love the Lord your God with all your soul. Now, for many of us, we've been conditioned by our culture, our, by our language. When I say the word, if I just ask you, and I like to do this sometimes, let's just close, close your eyes for a minute if you don't mind. And when I say the word, soul. I would think we probably all have a certain picture in our minds, right? Our culture has given our pic- a picture for us. Our language have given us a picture. And you can open your eyes, and I-, I just wanted us to picture for a minute this idea of soul. For many of us, we probably think of the idea of maybe like a disembodied spirit. You know, we think of someone's soul. We sort of think of a a robot before it has anything in it to make the parts move, right? We think of our soul, the essence of within us that somehow lives beyond the reality of our skin and our bones. Some kind of essence that continues on when this body ceases to function. But I want us to be really cautious. Because if that's the only thing we, we think about souls, if that's the only uh, place that we move to with souls, in fact, if, if that is our definition of soul, we're going to miss, number one, what they're talking about here and what Jesus is pointing us to. And we're really going to miss a significant part of the story of Scripture. To be super, super clear, the Scripture does not tell the story of disembodied souls going off somewhere else, but talks about the resurrection, the the resurrection and renewal of this earth 
and an incredible reality of heaven coming here. Not disembodied souls going somewhere else, vacuum theology that sucks us out of this world, but the restoration, the renewal, the rescue of all of this. Now that is a much more beautiful story. And so we come to this idea of soul. So we we might need to make some correction. We might need to have some definition change to get the impact here. So to discover this, let's go to some passages in Scripture. We're going to do a little bit more word study again, as we're going to find. And we're going to start this in Psalm 42. This is what it says. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for the living God. Now, I want to read that again because you may have heard that before. Maybe you've got this hung up in your bathroom somewhere or down a hallway. It's one of those passages that we tend to find at the store that, you know, looks in a really pretty frame. And, but I want to read it again because I want these words to really hit us, and then I want to begin to look a little bit deeper at it. It's a beautiful passage. It really is. As the deer pants for streams of water. I just want you to imagine this absolutely thirsty animal searching for this water, just, wa- just panting, absolutely searching. So my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Now, let's back up for a second. Let's look at this. When we hear these words, our First reaction might be this. We might think of them in some super spiritual mindset, right? Because, what did I say? We, we have all this baggage, right? We have this baggage of the concept of soul that turns it into, well, there's, my, there's the body of me, right? And then there's the soul of me. And I sort of create these separate boxes of life. And I've got my soul life. And that's sort of when I'm like, oh, my soul is feeling uplifted. I'm feeling really good. Like my, there's something going on here in me. That might just be indigestion. It might just be the taco you had. I don't know. But sometimes we have stuff in us that we think that's my soul happening here. But this is actually a really fascinating passage when we begin to dig into it. Because we see something happening here. The baggage about this disembodied soul leads us to something that was never meant to happen. And that's to think of us and ourselves in that duality. We're not meant to think of ourselves in this duality of body and soul. When we begin to divide it up, begin to move it out of how it's supposed to be, we miss so much depth of the story. The word soul that's used here and used elsewhere has no sense of that duality. This is so cool. The, the, the word that's used here doesn't have any sense of this separation of this over here and this over here. And it's kind of unfortunate that we end up using the word soul, but it's kind of one of those places in language where we just really don't have a better word for what we're going to put here. And then things begin to, over time, begin to mean something else, and it begins to change. But the word soul is super cool, and I can't wait to dig a little bit further here. So let's talk about what the word soul is. We learned last week that the word heart is this word lavav. Here we learn that the soul is the nefesh. And I think it's the coolest word in the world. I love this word, the nefesh. Now, how do we find this? Where where do we find this used? And this is what's cool. Nefesh is used all over the place. 
If we began to do a word study, if we began to read the scriptures in Hebrew, we would find this word nephesh coming up in all kinds of places. So we have to see where is this word used, how is it used in different contexts, and then we'll get this fuller picture. Now, one of those places is going to seem like a really odd place. When I show you that this is the word nephesh, you're going to be like, I can't believe that's the same word as the, the deer that's panting water like my soul pants for the Lord. When you hear this word nephesh, you're going to be like, that doesn't seem to make any sense. How can that be the same word? But we find this use of the word, it's in the book of Numbers. In the story, we find the Israelites, they're wandering in the desert, sort of like this deer wandering looking for water, Right? The Israelites had been wandering in the desert. They'd been rescued by God from their slavery in Egypt, but they were tired. They were hungry. They were thirsty. And if you know much about this story, you know this is a great story to tell because it's one of those moments where they put on rose-colored glasses and they begin to remember how things were. Do you know this? So they get rescued from slavery. Things were terrible. They're wandering through the desert, and all of a sudden they get tired, they get hungry, they get thirsty, and they begin to sound like your kids on a long trip. Are we there yet, Moses? I'm really hungry. I'm thirsty. Can we go back? They literally say that. Can we go back? It wasn't that bad. Slavery in Egypt wasn't, the, wasn't terrible. At least we had food and water. You can imagine that, you know, you read this, you're like, what are they doing? Well, we all do this. It's another story that helps us understand our lives, that we see our lives changed by God, and we look back and we go, oh, can I just go back? I kind of liked it back there. And we put on these rose-colored glasses about how things were, right? Now listen to how the story tells it. It says this. It says, the rabble with them began to crave other food. Another great word, guys, if you could use rabble today. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had eat, uh, meat to eat. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt at no cost. <laughs> yes, it was. Slave labor, guys. Like, I'm, I'm just, I just kind of think, like, do you ever think, like, they're just sitting there and they say that and they're like, isn't anybody like, um, forget it. But this is the rabble. See, the rabble doesn't think very clearly, right? The rabble's like, remember, we ate. It was no cost. Also, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks. I don't know if I've ever had it. Have you ever had a leek? I don't know what a leek is. A leek onions and garlic. I don't know what these people are eating. The cucumbers and melons sound good, but, but now, listen, but now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna, which is this incredible gift that God gave the people for their hunger. They missed the blessing that God had given them. They look back and they want all this other stuff, and they say, but now we've lost our appetite. These people forgot the reality God had rescued them, was providing for them. And in their complaining, and this is it, in their complaining, they used the word nephesh to describe their situation. The translation that I just read translates it this way, but now we have lost our appetite. Others say we're famished or we're withering away. And what's fascinating about this is that sounds pretty physical, doesn't it? 
This isn't about them looking back and going, I was just happier back then. No, they're, I'm hungry. I want to eat. Man, that just, I'm just, oh. Have you ever been to the point you were so hungry, like you could just smell, like I went on a bike ride the other day. Man, somebody was grilling. I almost stopped at this person's house. I don't even know who they are. And I thought I could probably pull it off. You know, I've got kind of that charismatic personality. I'd be like, man, what you got going, man? I, this is pretty good. Can I just stay for dinner? Because, I mean, it smelled so good. Like, I, I rode my bike, and I, like, I rode again. Like, this person really helped my exercise because I went back around the block just to, that's how good it smelled. Like, this is, this, you need to invite this person to your next, because it was really good. But that appetite, that hunger, that wasn't me going, you know, those burgers would be good for my soul. No, man, that burger is good for my tummy. That burger needs to be right in here. Get in my belly is what's going on there. And that's what they're saying. They're sitting here going, I want the melons in my belly. I want the leeks in my belly and the onions and the garlic in my belly. I want to taste it. I want to be so full that I sit back and I my button burst and I go, oh yeah, like that's what I remember, but I am so hungry, I've lost my appetite, I'm so hungry, my nephesh is bleh. that's what they're talking about, now there's an awesome translation here uh, that helps us understand this, it says this, we miss the cucumbers and the melons we had in Egypt, I'm talking juicy melons. You know, not the ones that have been on the counter for like a couple hours, you know, a couple days. I'm talking about when you first cut that thing open, it is dripping, and you're just, oh, you, it's like drinking melon. That's what's going on here. We miss the cucumbers and melons we have in Egypt, and now our nephesh has dried up. Now, this is what's cool. The basic definition of nephesh. One of those words that began to, you know, become all these different things. The most basic definition is my throat. My nephesh has dried up. This physical reality of my body just dry. Now, does that sound like a disembodied soul? Your whole life. Your whole body depends on what comes in and out of your nephesh. And that's why nephesh isn't just soul. It's not just throat. It actually becomes the whole entire person. So then we begin to see in Scripture that there are people that are called nephesh. We see people that when the breath of God is put into them, they're living nephesh. When we see that the animals are created, they are living nephishes. We are living nephish. It's not just this idea of this disembodied thing. It's this whole person. So that brings us back to Psalm 42. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my nephish pants for you, my God. My gut and my throat, the wholeness of my body. The whole essence of me desires to be in the presence of God. And then in a brilliant work of metaphor, the author shows us that thirst can be like a deer for water. My throat, my nephesh 
can be so physically dry that I pant for that water. Desperate for it. My life, my nephish life is to look the same. My whole being belongs to God. That I am supposed to live my life in such a way that I love God with my entire being. And that all of me thirsts and hungers for the presence of God. And all of this brings us back to this prayer from Jesus. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your mind. And to love God with all your soul, your nephesh, doesn't mean promising some disembodied reality to God. It doesn't mean being like, yes, Jesus, I want my soul to be with you in heaven. It means, Jesus, I want you to be in my life right here and right now. I want a fullness of your presence right now now. It means giving God your whole present entire physical being. It means dedicating to God and entrusting God with all that is good, with all that is broken, with all that is you. Because what did I say at the end of the story? It's not about these disembodied souls going off somewhere else, getting vacuumed out of this world. But it's about God being fully present in the here and now. And this life is our opportunity to, think about the words, to taste. To hunger for that. To want that so bad that all of our being is connected to that reality. To say, I am a part of this world But my soul, the essence, the physicalness of me, all of my being is connected to the love and grace and the mercy of the eternal. Doesn't that change things? I mean, doesn't that radically shift everything? That I'm not just saying, okay, so when I die, my soul goes off somewhere. No, I'm saying, I'm going to live now. I'm going to have the fullness of life in the here and now. That is powerful. That is incredible. That is loving God with all your soul. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for the words of Jesus that call us to love you with the very depth of our being. God, help us to continue to wrestle with this, to to continue to come to a place where maybe older definitions have to begin to be seen as failing us, and that new definitions help us to live out your love and your grace and your mercy in our lives and in this world. So God, I pray that each of us would go, we would wrestle with this idea of dedicating our lives, our whole lives, all of our being to you. Loving God with our heart, our mind, and our soul. Amen.